Once again, we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we've had a little hiatus for the last couple of weeks, but uh, we're very happy to welcome uh, Alex Petropoulos back to the show. He's a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Alex, anything you want to tell us about yourself, maybe a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, my name's Alex. I'm currently a writer and political commentator for Young Voices, and I'm also doing work on AI policy for a various number of places, helping to make sure that we make the AI safe. Well, it's that's the big challenge today, isn't it? Um, AI is definitely, you know, it's it's something that is a part of society. It's it's I I anticipate it's going to become more and more part of how we live our lives, much like the internet did. But uh, as far as uh, okay, how do we properly regulate it? That seems to be something a lot of countries are struggling with right now. Yeah, yeah, and that's a really great analogy used of the internet, and I think that sets a very good lower bound of how transformative this technology could be. We know it could it's going to be as transformative as the internet at least. It might be even more transformative. And that really that sort of uncertainty about, you know, we know it's going to change a lot, but we don't know quite what will happen. We don't know which way things are going to go. That's the name of the game when it comes to the the crisis that's gra- grappling countries at the moment with how do they regulate it's there's so many questions that need to be answered and the problem is that many countries are leaning to their traditional answer they're leaning to traditional regulation leaning to the tool tool built that they've always used in the past when the problem arises which is good old-fashioned regulation and there are some issues that raises along the line. Well, let's let's start with regulation. What's the downside of traditional regulation when it comes to something like AI? So probably the biggest downside I'd put forward as to traditional regulation is the fact that AI moves so quickly, the fact that there are paradigm shifts all the time. And the gravest risk is what I call like the illusion of safety and the idea that you might think that you've prepared for the worst. You might think that you've passed laws, you've passed regulations, said, okay, we're safe. We've dealt with the whole AI issue. And then suddenly you have this massively capability. And suddenly you have a massive shift in the paradigm of what AI even looks like. Because that's the thing. We don't know what GPT-5, GPT-6, GPT-7 will be capable of doing. We don't even know what GPT-5, 6, and 7 will look like. It might be a completely different paradigm computation, a completely different way of thinking about AI. And so setting in stone cut and dry rules of this is what AI is, this is how you regulate it now, when there's so many questions to be answered, I think is quite reckless. Okay. Um, I appreciate that explanation. Now, you actually offer uh, a different alternative that uh, maybe isn't the first thing that would occur to people, but traditionally this has worked pretty well throughout human history. How would cooperation and cooperative efforts uh, be superior to just simple top-down regulation? Yeah, so cooperation, coordination, collaboration, whatever word you want to use for it, that is what I see as the, the best way forward when it comes to solving these challenges and answering these unanswered questions. And what really makes this so feasible at the moment is the fact that if you look at who's at the frontier of AI development, you say, 
who is pushing out these best, these top tier frontier level models. And you're looking at OpenAI, you're looking at Google DeepMind, and you're looking at Anthropic. Maybe if you think generous, throw in Meta and Microsoft, but realistically it's three to five players. And that means that coordination between that small bunch is very easy. And you've got a group that knows the tech the best. You've got a group that is actually really invested in tackling these large societal issues their transformative technology might face. We saw there was a paper that came out three hours ago, actually. This is hot off the press. You're getting the real latest research here, which is coming from Google DeepMind. And they're sort of exploring different models for AI governance institutions and sort of saying, okay, if we wanted to cooperate on AI, how will we do this? And you look at the list of contributors to this paper, you've got people from universities all over the world. You've got people from Google DeepMind working on it. You've got people from OpenAI working on this research. So it's really already on the research end of things, a team effort. And so we've got to do the best we can to take that team effort out of academia and bring it into the political sphere as well. Interesting. As you're describing this and how, um, you know, collaboration and cooperation could work, uh, it makes me think a little bit about how um, traffic works, you know, as you're driving your car. You have thousands of people, say, in a city, maybe millions of people traveling. All of them have different destinations, different needs, different uh, goals as they're moving through traffic. But through cooperation, Everybody seems, for the most part, to arrive at their destination safely. There are some basic rules that they have to follow, but uh, for the most part, nobody has to tell you, now turn here, now slow down, now do that, now do that. It's something they're able to, to suss out on their own. And, and I'm just wondering, is that kind of how you envision this type of, uh, of collaborative effort uh, between the different parties in terms of uh, helping shape how AI goes from here? Um. I think probably a better analogy is we're all in this big city trying to get to our destination, but someone switched off all of our sat-navs and our GPSs, and we don't know what direction we have to take. And so it really comes down to us having to plot a course together to try and navigate through this un uncertain terrain, right? And, you know, this paper I was referencing, one of the big questions they set out is we need to actually clarify and set down what are the benefits and what are the risks that we actually have to be considering in the first place. Because we haven't actually gone through the process of writing down a list and saying, these are the potential benefits, these are the potential risks. And then you have to look at, you know, how can we make this cooperation happen? And what sort of institutional structures are we looking at? And, you know, we could look at something like a public-private partnership that focuses on making sure that the benefits of AI are distributed democratically and throughout the world. So that it's not just the rich Western countries that benefit from AI. You want to set up some sort of international governance organization that has a private public partnership that can spread those benefits around. On the other hand, you also need a governance institution that's really focused on sort of exploring and pushing the frontier of, you know, what are, are these AI models capable of? What can they do? What are the risks we should be looking out for? And acting almost as like a, a library of knowledge for policymakers to come towards and say, we really want some help with writing our AI laws. We want to go to the AI governance, the commission on AI or whatever you want to call it and say, please help us understand this problem better.
So, Alex, I'm going to ask you, we've got about two minutes or so left here, but um, what do you see as the most positive um, likelihood with AI? In other words, what are the things that you see that, that AI is, is bringing a, a real quantifiable positive aspect to? And what do you see as the, the potential greatest risk in the way that, uh, that AI is currently developing? Um, I think the largest positive we could look at and the largest untapped fruit, low-hanging fruit we have going for us is all the possible advances on the medical side of things. There's so many gains to be drawn from the vast threads of data we have on healthcare. And you already see you know, DeepMind discovering ways to predict the way proteins will fold, discovering ways to detect cancers and kidney failures with AI models. So I think that it really could revolutionize healthcare, also things like education and whatnot. When it comes to risks, the risks are quite large. And you know, the amount of computation people have available to them is going to keep growing. And we could get to the point where everyone has the ability to create sort of a mini Ebola from home with their computer, just order the stuff on their at home and, and create it by themselves. And, you know, it's, I don't have to explain the sort of dangerous ramifications of distributing that sort of dangerous technology. And so it, it makes creating amazing, brilliant things way easily way easier, but also makes creating quite destructive, dangerous things as easy. That's why we need this cooperation and some and these guiding principles to help us, like I said, navigate a path through this murky, murky swamp. Okay, that's I, I love your explanation there. And you point out in your article, um, there there is a point where for, for some of the more potent AI models, you know, regulation is going to be a part of this is not a free for all this isn't, you know, um, you know, this isn't just just anarchy, but um, very interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's so strange to see the future developing all around us. And, and the yeah. sensation of change. It's it's pretty incremental and small, maybe hard to notice, but I get the sense that there's a massive shift taking place right now beneath our feet. Blink and you miss it, you know. All right. Uh, we're talking with Alex Petropoulos. Alex, for, for people who would like to uh, follow up on this subject, uh, first of all, let's talk about where they can find you and where they can find your writing. And if there are any other resources you might want to point them toward, um, I, I would love to hear about those. So you can follow me on Twitter, uh, Alex T. Pet, um, and I'm talking about this stuff fairly often. Uh, as opposed to when it comes to resources, I'd read the DeepMind paper that just came out three hours ago. Go to DeepMind.com and you'll find it straight up there. Uh, there are a lot of other organizations that are looking at this, Governance AI. Um, in general, Though when it comes to it, there is a lot of work to be done. And so if you're interested in this, and if you spend, you know, a week looking into this, you're already at the top 1% of people who know about this issue. And so if you really want to get involved, the bar is quite low for you to become an expert on this and really push forward. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome Tyler Curtis back to the show. Tyler, for those who are meeting you for the first time, take just a second to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Brian. Yeah, um, well, I am a loan officer. I work uh, at a, a community bank here in Missouri. Uh, but in my free time, I, I like to write articles about economics, politics, and sometimes religion. 
And that's what we're going to be discussing today. And I actually, considering it was just a week ago we were celebrating Independence Day, I, I felt like your article that uh, you wrote for RealClearReligion.org was really timely. It's titled How Public Christianity Made Americans Free. And wow, Tyler, as I look around right now, um, any kind of public religious expression, at least of the traditional Judeo-Christian type, doesn't seem very welcome in the in the public square. No, it's it's really not. And uh, I, I I think back to when uh, Amy Comey Barrett was uh, going through one of her uh, confirmation hearings. I, I forget if that was the uh, the hearing for uh, for confirmation to the Supreme Court or for a federal judgeship. But uh, uh, Democratic senator uh, has said that accused uh, Barrett that. She said, the dogma lives loudly within you, <laughs> despite the fact that Barrett was not uh, talking about her religious belief uh, in those hearings. Uh, just the mere fact that she had strong religious beliefs was was uh, concerning for, for certain members of Congress. So, yeah, it, it's certainly the case that if you if you were to say, uh, I'm motivated by my religious convictions to support a particular policy or law, that's going to make some people uncomfortable. Uh, but if we consider the if we consider the way that the role that religion has played in the public square uh, for most of American history, we can see that it has not really had that that same uh, that same conflict or uh, uh, same weariness that we see today. Well, that's and that's good news. I mean, you start your article with a quote from uh, Christopher Hitchens, who, who man, he is not complimentary at all. In fact, he, he's pretty much is like, you know, religion never did anything good for anybody. Um, but let's let's look at the other side of that coin. Um, tell me about Mark David Hall and and his book. Yeah, so um, I wrote a review of Mark David Hall's uh, most recent book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout All the Land. Um, this is a short book, but uh, very well researched, that talks about how Christians um, have influenced American culture uh, and political life, um, especially leading up to the Civil War. Uh, and you're right, Christopher Hitchens, he's, he's most famous uh, as uh, a journalist, but also as uh, one of the so-called new atheists. And I use him at the beginning of my review of Hall's book as a foil uh, because he wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. So he's working from this framework where uh, religion is naturally suspect, and it, it never, it, it, to the extent that any, any human beings have done anything good uh, throughout history, it's because of uh, secular reason. And if they were religious, it was sort of accidental to their, to their personalities. It didn't really motivate them to do anything good. And Hall takes um, not quite the opposite approach because he takes a much more balanced approach and looks uh, at the ways specifically in America that religious Christians um, uh, have been motivated by their faith in Jesus Christ uh, to create a much more uh, fair, just, and, and equal society. And he notes that, yes, they didn't always uh, live up to their own ideals, but it's the ideals themselves that that uh, impelled them uh, to try to do better. Boy, that's a good distinction too. I mean, there there are three accomplishments that you list in your article right off the top, or that that, that Hall addresses um, establishing a constitutional republic. I mean, considering how how much some other nations changed their form of government. I mean, we've had something that's lasted a long time: abolishing slavery, protecting civil rights. People forget that uh, there there was a. Uh, there was a religious dynamic behind each one of those accomplishments. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and slavery is kind of the uh, the elephant in the room, uh, and uh, Christians really can't. Uh, we shouldn't shy away from the way that the Christians have behaved in the past, especially in respect to slavery. Uh, there's there's really no getting around it. Um, but uh, what I think we need to point out at the beginning, and I'm sure that a lot of people have heard this argument before, uh, but it bears repeating that slavery has been kind of a constant throughout human civilization, just as violence and and all sorts of other types of evils have existed. But the institutionalized evil of slavery has has always existed. So we need to ask the question, why doesn't, at least in the modern Western world, why doesn't slavery exist today, at least legal institutionalized slavery? Uh, and as Hall notes in his book, it, it, it seems to be uh, because uh, evangelical Christians in the United States, uh, motivated by their uh, belief in God and then the inherent dignity of all human beings, uh, took it upon themselves to uh, to fight for the equality of and liberty of all people, uh, regardless of their race or their particular circumstances, and they drew on they drew on uh, the rich Christian tradition uh, and scripture. Uh, and I also th it's you know it's important to to look back and say that even though Christians participated in slavery, uh, introduced slavery to the New World, it was always there was always that inherent conflict. Uh, between how people acted and the faith they professed. Uh, you know, going back even to the Middle Ages, Christians had, had realized that slavery was uh, morally wrong. You know, I, I think back to uh, Pope Eugene IV in, in 1435, who issued a bull uh, when the Portuguese were trying to colonize uh, the Canary Islands, and they were trying to take slaves, and Pope Eugene IV had a, a bull called Sicket Dudum, and he said, uh, if you guys uh, enslave the inhabitants of these islands, you are automatically excommunicated. We do not condone slavery. You know, and this is 60 years before Columbus even discovered the new world. Um, you know, and, and you fast forward to uh, to the founding of the United States. It, there, you know, uh, people that really cared about their faith understood, even if they didn't always do something about it, they understood that slavery was wrong. Um, very few people, if any, up until the 1820s, 1830s, really tried to argue that slavery was a positive good. Even people that owned slaves, um, they admitted that what they were doing was wrong, but they couldn't figure out a way to get rid of it. But they recognized it as a moral evil. Well, and not to defend slavery, but I know that one of the concerns that, that some, you know, some of the people had who had slaves was to, to simply cut them loose would be essentially to, to sentence them to poverty and death um, because they weren't uh, they weren't prepared they weren't educated to, to take care of themselves and that's not to say therefore you know slavery was a net good but there was a reality of um, you know just like you wouldn't turn a little child out on his or her own um, the the slaves were not prepared to, to go out there and make their own way in the world so yeah it was it was a problem that uh, was was much more uh, nuanced and much more complex in many ways than than simply well they just wanted to own other people uh, talk to me about the effect on civic um, government or civil government as far as the respect for individual natural rights um, how did christianity influence uh, you know the way that government was established and the limits that were placed on it yeah that's one of the most interesting parts of the book i think that the hall goes into i, I 
I kind of wish he had gone more in depth because it really is such an interesting subject. Um, well, he begins the book by talking about the Puritans, um, who we look back on today as these, you know, really oppressive theocrats. But uh, in a lot of ways, we owe um, our civic rights and, and liberties uh, to the ideas that were promulgated by the Puritans uh, when they colonized uh, certain parts of North America, um, when they set up their their civil governments. Um, they put uh, limits on the, the arbitrary power of magistrates. They held regular elections. They, uh, they held uh, uh, suffrage was, uh, for example, uh, much more widespread in Puritan New England than it was in, in well, pretty much anywhere else in the world. More, more men could vote. Uh, of course, women couldn't vote at the time, but n women couldn't vote in, in anywhere else. But uh, the Puritans expanded suffrage uh, more than any other place in the world and had checks and balances on their on their civic leaders. All right. Unfortunately, we are up against the clock. We're talking with Tyler Curtis. Fascinating discussion. I appreciate you writing the article. Tell me where people can follow you on social media. Sure. Well, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at TylerCurtis42. Um, and if you're interested in reading my other work, if you go to uh, youngvoices.com, type in my name. Uh, everything I publish is, is up there. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Parker McCumber back to the show. Parker, for those who are meeting you for the first time, take a second here and tell us about who you are and what you do. Well, thanks so much, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Uh, for those who don't know me yet, my name is Parker McCumber. I am a serial entrepreneur and a commission officer in the Utah National Guard. I'm a contributor for Young Voices, and I specialize in gun control and economic policy. And I've got a great article here from you in front of me. This is in the Washington Examiner. 3D printed ghost guns make firearms bans dangerous. Now, I've been hearing a little bit about 3D gun printing. In fact, I'll have to admit, some of my favorite memes on Twitter are, you know, people saying, oh, the printer goes, you know, to, to mock people who are calling for more gun control. But talk to me about what's happening in, in some of the states. I know there's been great concern about so-called ghost guns, say, in California and Illinois and other states where there, there's pretty strict gun control. Is this spreading to other states that uh, maybe have had more lax gun laws uh, to this point? So let me start with the kind of why, the reason I wrote this article in the first place, uh, was I saw the state of Connecticut had passed new firearms legislation that was raising minimum ages for firearms purchases. It was limiting the number of firearms that an individual could purchase. Uh, and mandating increased training requirements. In addition to that, I saw states like Washington and Colorado that were introducing new legislation and that legislation was passing uh, that was really cracking down on the ability to obtain AR and AK styled rifles. Now, the problem with that is the 3D printer, the technology has outpaced the legislation, and I find that that's often the case. Uh, legislation and bureaucracy are slow, and technology is innovative and wants to move quickly. Uh, where that becomes a problem is that these bans ultimately have minimal effect, if any. Uh, we see it's actually kind of a, a eye-opening thought. If you were to just Google 
3D printed firearm or 3D printed gun, there are literally tens of thousands of results that will come up uh, ranging from how to do it yourself in your garage, how to purchase a 3D printer on Amazon and, and how you can crank this up. So ultimately, the issue is that it does nothing. These bans, this legislation does nothing in the way of achieving their desired result and does everything to prevent law-abiding citizens from the best available means of self-defense. So it creates criminals where there are no criminals. So it, it, say a law-abiding person said, well, I want to I 3D print my own gun. Under these bans, they become a criminal simply by trying to do so. They haven't harmed anybody. They just, now they're, they're violating a politician's words on paper. Correct. Uh, and, you know, despite these strict measures of gun control that some of these states are uh, implementing, it's not reducing the prevalence or increase of these ghost guns or these 3D printed guns. Uh, And actually, we're seeing very rapid increases in their prevalence, particularly in their use for criminal activity. Uh, For example, in the article I cited, there was a, a report from the Buffalo, New York Police Department that in 2020, they confiscated five ghost guns. And in 2021, they confiscated 69 ghost guns, which is over a thousand percent increase year over year. Uh, That was paired then with a New York Times article that was citing uh, ATF data that specified in 2017, 1600 ghost guns were used on crime scenes. And then in 2021, that number was over 20,000. So that's, again, over a thousand percent increase in the prevalence of these firearms in a relatively short period of time. Uh, So ultimately, criminals still have the ability to very easily and affordably circumvent these bans and this legislation because the technology has just outpaced uh, what what anybody could reasonably keep up with. So I argue that the best way to enhance public safety is personal responsibility of your own safety uh, and to actually make it more easy and affordable for individuals to have the best means of self-home family defense uh, and deregulating a lot of these more prevalent firearms. I bet that doesn't go over very well with, with a lot of politicians, though. They seem very intent on, no, 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 we, we have to control this. I don't know who you are, but I know I need to make it as hard as possible for you to, to own a firearm or the means of protecting yourself. And I, I agree with you, by the way, Parker. I think, I think it's, a, it's a very misguided um, attempt to try to, to control outcomes. But I think it was Lysander Spooner who said, you know, when, when we approach laws that way, Basically, what we're saying is your freedom and my freedom now depends not on our own conduct, but on what criminals are doing as opposed to what we're doing. I 100 percent agree with that. And I, I it's very frustrating to me because I believe in championing, championing personal responsibility and taking upon yourself the right for your own self-defense. Uh, I know there's been many instances where SCOTUS has ruled that law enforcement does not have a duty or an obligation to protect you. So I feel like a lot of this gun control um, push is based on this misguided principle that 
someone else will come and help you. Someone else will come and save you. Someone else will protect you from violence or harm. And that's simply not the case. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I want to advocate for individuals being ready, trained, trusted, and capable to provide their own self-defense and the defense of their loved ones. Let's take a moment and talk a little bit about training, because people who have not had quality firearms training, um, they may tend to think, well, training, you just go out and you shoot, you know, and you, you shoot the gun a lot. But but the shooting is only part of, of the, the kind of quality training that a person should have, you know, if they're going to use a firearm for personal defense. I mean, mindset and understanding what's going on around you and knowing when it's appropriate versus when it isn't. That's also a part of that training. That's absolutely correct. And, and to be honest, I've been very blessed uh, with my military experience and subsequently just the personal hobby and the desire to seek out that training. Uh, I definitely recommend that firearm owners seek that opportunity. And it can start with, like you said, uh, just getting some time behind the firearm, learning how it operates and uh, becoming comfortable with, with its exercise and use. Uh, but additionally, there's a whole level of training where you need to become comfortable and proficient in its use while under stress and duress. And that training can then move to a subsequent level because no matter what, if you were ever in a situation when you needed to use a firearm for self-defense, it is not going to be the same situation as you standing in an air conditioned range, uh, you know, in your comfortable lane with your <laughs> blinders up and a target on paper five meters away. Um, so it, there's definitely some, some value that needs to be sought out in obtaining training. Uh, but I also don't think that like the state of Colorado, Washington and Connecticut are, are intending that shouldn't be mandated by the federal government. Uh, and that also shouldn't be a deciding factor in who can and cannot then obtain a means for self-defense. So while I definitely encourage individuals to seek out that training and become proficient and comfortable with their firearms, I do not think it's the federal government's place to d dictate what level of training is mandatory to purchase and own a firearm. Here, here. No, you've said it. You've said it beautifully. Um, tell me about your take on on 3D printing. Um, has the technology improved significantly? It seems like it seems like I've been hearing about it now for pretty much I don't know maybe the last ten years that uh, that this has really kind of been on my radar screen, but I haven't followed it close enough. In other words, I don't have any 3D printed guns. But has the technology improved over that time? Absolutely. Um, and there was some kind of eye-opening research that I was doing while I was writing this paper to make sure that I was up to date on, on what I was talking about. Uh, it seems like 3D printing really kind of became prevalent in about 2013. And the technology was relatively low-key. It was a little bit more expensive. It wasn't as common. Uh, but I mean, at this point now, almost, I guess, a full decade later, you can get on Amazon and buy a 3D printer that far surpasses the capability of just a decade ago for less than $100. Wow. And I mean, it's very readily available. And that's one of the factors that really circumvents these gun laws and, and legislation that they're trying to push. Uh, it, with today's technology, it's very easy to take a very affordable 3D printer and manufacture firearms literally anywhere. Uh, and one of the ATF-related articles that I had read actually said that they busted a um, 3D printing firearms manufacturer just in somebody's basement. 
uh, with about a dozen printers just going, creating firearms parts, uh, which, I mean, on that scale is a little bit scary to hear about, but also really highlights that there is a very low barrier to entry in these things. I, I mean, in the past, if you wanted to circumvent these laws, maybe you're going to a hardware store, you're learning to, to build these things yourself. Now it's as easy as downloading a file from the internet. Again, we're talking with Parker McCumber, um, who is a contributor for Young Voices. Where can people follow you on social media, Parker? They can find me on Twitter, at Parker underscore McCumber. McCumber is spelled M-C-C-U-M-B-E-R. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our fourth and final segment today. Happy to welcome Ethan Brown back to the show. Ethan, it's good to catch up with you once again. Thanks for having me, Brian. I know there are some folks hearing you for the first time. Let's take a moment here to make sure they know who you are and what you do. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, I am a writer and commentator for Young Voices. I am also the founder and host of The Sweaty Penguin, which is a award-winning comedy climate program presented by PBS's National Climate Initiative, Peril and Promise. Our goal is to make climate change less overwhelming, less politicized, and more fun. And Friday will be our 200th episode, so hey, do go check that out. Congratulations. No, that's fantastic. So I'm looking at an article that, uh, that you've written for The Hill, why the EPA's new carbon emissions rules will win in court. And I'll admit, I don't have my finger on the pulse of this kind of stuff like you do, but uh, tell me about these, these carbon emissions rules. Uh, what exactly is the EPA doing these days? Sure. So under the Clean Air Act, the EPA is required to set standards on emissions for various air pollutants. And in 2007, there was a Supreme Court ruling, Massachusetts v. EPA, which basically said that carbon dioxide is included on that list. It is a greenhouse gas that drives climate change, and as such, it's important to our uh, public health to regulate carbon dioxide emissions. That doesn't give the EPA full authority to do whatever they want, though, obviously. So they have to work within the confines of the Clean Air Act. They've made a few attempts at this. Uh, under the Obama administration, they tried the Clean Power Plan, which um, essentially was requiring that um, coal and oil and gas uh, plants actually transition to they shut down and we switch over to clean energy. That was a bit of an overreach under the Clean Air Act, and the Supreme Court shot that down last summer. Um, the Trump administration tried the affordable clean energy rule, which was also uh, shot down almost immediately for not going far enough under the Clean Air Act. Um, but this latest attempt, I, I think, got it right. They basically are targeting power plants at the source. They're requiring that they take measures to implement things like carbon capture and storage, clean hydrogen, essentially regulating at the source, not requiring them to shut down, leaving that op open as an option. But um, in this particular iteration, I think it was a lot more in line with what the courts and the law require them to do. So I understand that uh, West Virginia, though, is really not on board with this, and they're promising, "Hey, we're gonna, we'll see you in court." What? Why are they uh, wanting to take the EPA to court? 
It's really a suit if you do, suit if you don't situation. I think the argument against this sort of regulation, I mean, from a political perspective, there are obviously arguments against this sort of thing. When you're slapping on command and control regulations as opposed to leaving these things to markets and letting solar and wind do what they do best and be the cheapest, most effective energy source, um, including things like nuclear and all, like that's a little more exciting than talking about slapping regulations on power plants. So I understand why there's a motivation to come at this sort of thing in the court. But the EPA's job is not to create policy. They don't have that directive or that power. The EPA is instructed to follow the rules of the Clean Air Act. And even regardless of whether we like the nuances of this regulation or not, I think that that's what they accomplished by creating this regulation. So Congress are the ones who create the regulations in terms of of the, the act. But uh, the EPA is just kind of the executive agency carrying it out. Um, does that mean then that uh, the courts are, are not going to find any reason to, to stand in their way or to tell them, OK, you have to stop? Exactly. Congress makes the laws, the EPA and the executive branch enforce the laws and the court decides um, if the laws break the rules of the Constitution and help interpret the laws. So. I would be very surprised if the courts had any issue with what the EPA has done with this and with their tailpipe standards that followed a similar uh, formula. Last summer, we saw West Virginia v. EPA, which was a very high-profile climate Supreme Court case, and that had to do with the Clean Power Plan. And the court adopted a pretty narrow ruling where they basically said that generation shifting, this was what the EPA termed the idea of shifting from coal and gas plants to solar and wind and other clean energy sources, that that was not permitted under the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act is really about regulating emissions at a point source. So um, the Obama EPA tried to make the electric grid its point source in doing that, um, but the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. But not only can you still regulate carbon dioxide, but you are required to under Massachusetts v. EPA and under the Clean Air Act. So that's why I think this particular iteration that is specifically at the source, looking at carbon capture, looking at clean hydrogen, looking at that sort of thing, is very clearly based on what the Supreme Court asked them to do. If the Supreme Court shot that down, I think they'd be going back on their previous verdict. Ethan, when it comes to to doing this kind of carbon capture at the source, um, has the technology improved to where they're not being told, you know, you will make water run uphill? Or basically, uh, do they have the technology to do this, or or are they being ordered to figure out a way to make it work somehow, and and they've just got to suss it out from there? The technology exists, and in fact, a lot of, um, I mentioned in the article, uh, coal companies like Peabody Energy, oil companies from Exxon to uh, ConocoPhillips to all of them, they're, they're all very enthusiastic about the idea of carbon capture and storage. And that's not surprising. If they can do it effectively, they can uh, continue some of their operations in, in theory. So I think that... The technology is there. The issue is it's not 
First off, it's not nearly as cost effective as using cleaner energy sources. And the way I see it as someone who works in climate, what excites me more is being able to use carbon capture and storage as an addition to things like clean energy to hopefully turn the world carbon negative someday and actually maybe get a little bit back to normal. So we can't do that if we're just using it to cancel out our carbon emissions from fossil fuel combustion. But certainly that doesn't mean it's not a viable technology. And again, this is what the EPA realized it had the power to regulate. So we Congress can continue doing what it is to fuel a clean energy transition, but this is how the EPA can fulfill its obligations under the Clean Air Act. So I have to ask, as a consumer, somebody who's enjoying air conditioning, for instance, right right this minute, um, how does this affect the, the consumers? Does this, when, when the EPA carries out this policy and they're told, you know, okay, we're going to do these uh, carbon emissions rules, does it make it more expensive in order to meet those standards and you know i mean ultimately that's going to be passed on to the consumer right possibly but i wouldn't worry too much first off on the tailpipe standard because that was another big one where the epa uh, basically said that car companies need to get the average emissions from their vehicles down to 82 grams per mile. Uh, for comparison, my Honda CRV I drive would be around 275 grams per mile. Um, that's not saying every car has to do that. That's saying the average across the company has to do that, um, I believe, by the early 2030s. Now, Ford and GM and all these companies have already set forth plans to transition very heavily toward electric vehicles. There are other laws in place that help uh, create that transition. So I think that that will ultimately lead people to save money. If we're making that transition, people end up with vehicles where they don't have to pay through the roof gas prices and have lower maintenance costs and everything. So that that could end up saving people money. The, um, the power plant one, similarly, the EPA found economic benefit from the regulation as opposed to economic cost. How that gets passed on to consumers, I'm not exactly sure, but I do know uh, the more clean energy on the grid, the cheaper stuff will be. Okay, and and this has nothing. This says nothing yet, even about you know, in, including more wind turbines, more solar farms, that kind of thing. Um, maybe maybe that's a topic for another another time. I just I only ask because there's a massive wind farm that's being proposed near where I live, and it's interesting to see the reaction. Some people are like, "Yeah, I want clean energy, but not in my backyard." You know, I don't want the the means of getting it right here in my backyard. Got a little NIMBY going on there. Um, Tell us where people can find your work, Ethan. Where, where can they find you on social media? Where can they follow your podcast? Well, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at Ethan Brown 5151 You can find The Sweaty Penguin at thesweatypenguin.com, at PBS Peril and Promise, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And um, if you want to support our show, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch. We have like daily bonus content over there now. So do go check that out. 